0: All right, here we go. We're gonna end our, our, our last message in our series on Moses. Take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 27. I wanna encourage you to pull out your message notes. Really easy to follow along. All the scripture verses and uh, points and everything are on there. Uh, we're gonna be covering a lot of ground. So um, uh, buckle up your seatbelt, hold on tight. We might be flying through some of this pretty quick. Uh, Numbers chapter 27, Uh, Beginning in verse 12 to verse 23. Uh, Really, the message is really about Moses passing the spiritual baton of faith to Joshua. And Moses is not going to be leading God's people into the promised land. Joshua is going to be doing that. Um, So here we go. Numbers 27. The Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, You also shall be gathered to your people. What an amazing promise. Amen. When you die, you'll be gathered to God. You'll be gathered to your people. As your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. So Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, let the Lord the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eliezer, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him." He took Joshua and made him stand before Eliezer, the priest, and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. Okay, so I think today is like 31 messages in the series on Moses. I'm going to give you a a flyover, right, a 30,000-foot aerial view of where we've been. We know that at God's perfect timing, he gives his people a deliverer, a rescuer, right? We know the story. God leads by Moses his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of uh, infanticide, genocide, oppression, injustice, and, and and begins to lead his people. And we know that God splits the Red Sea and gives his people victory and, and, and plunges the Egyptians into the sea and destroys them and kills them. We know that God um, brings Moses up the mountain and Moses has this Unbelievable encounter with God. I mean, he sees the Shekinah glory of God. He experiences his presence. And we know that God gives the law to Moses. And we know that for decades, Moses leads his people through the wilderness. At this point, they are on the edge of the promised land. I mean, literally, they're on the edge. They could taste it. Moses is overlooking all the land. And God tells Moses, hey, I want you to go up to this mountain that I've given to the, the, I want you to see the land that I've given to the people of Israel. And when you have seen it, you will be gathered to your people. God says, Moses, when you see the land, he says, you will not place a foot on the land, on the ground. But the moment you see it, you'll be gathered to your people. That is a beautiful picture of death. The Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament, right? For to me, for to, me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is gain if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, it is not gain. But as a believer, you die. If you die in Christ, you're going to have this glorious entrance into your eternal home. You're going to be in the presence of God forever. You're going to be reunited with your people, your loved ones who also died as believers in Christ. Now, why couldn't Moses enter the land? Well, Moses is reminded again of his failure. God reminds Moses that, listen, you rebelled against my word in the, in the wilderness of Zin. He reminds him, listen, this is why you can't enter. I want you to look at what God originally told Moses in Numbers chapter 20, verses 7 and 9. And it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and, and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. We know that God tells Moses to speak to the rock. And the symbolism there was God was saying, Moses, I want you to show the power of my word to my people. I want you to show my people that I can bring forth a waterfall of life. God is like, Moses, this is not your problem. There's a drought. People are thirsty. They're complaining, griping. They're negative, right? People are toxic. He says, listen, this is not your problem. This is my problem. I'm going to split the rock open. Water is going to gush out. The drought will be no more. But here's the problem, and we looked at it weeks ago. Moses lifted up his hand in anger, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. God said to speak to the rock, and Moses struck the rock with his staff. Here's the deal. Partial obedience is total disobedience. He didn't do what God told him to do. What is God calling you to do right now in your life? What is very clear to you? God is maybe revealing something to you through in his word by by, by the spirit of God living within you. Maybe it's God wants you to give something. God wants you to go somewhere. God wants you to do something. God wants you to bless that person. God wants you in community. God wants you serving. God wants you to take the precious gift of the gospel that you've been entrusted with. You're a a steward, you're a manager of the gospel. You don't own the gospel, God does, but he owns you. And he wants you to take that gospel to a lost and hurting world. Who in your oikos, your eight to 15, does God want you to share the love of Christ with? We are surrounded by people that are hurting, and, and, and they're searching for hope. They're searching for meaning and significance. Trust me, I mean, we were created by God with a soul. There there is this yearning in all of us to know, is there life beyond the grave? Is this all there is, or is there something more? And there is something more, and that more is found in Christ, and that more can be given to you in Christ when you surrender all, when you place your faith in Christ, when you yield to him, and you make him Lord and Savior of your life. He takes the throne of your life. And he transforms you and he, he makes you into a new person. You know, Moses wasn't totally obedient to God. He, he did contrary to what God said. Here's what Moses did. Moses went his own way. How often do we go our own way? How often do we think that we're smarter than God, right, that we're bigger than God, that our plans are better than God's plans? Listen, Moses should have just surrendered. But listen, I'm not giving a pastor to Moses. But can you imagine leading these grumbling Israelites for 40 years? I probably would have struck that rock 20 times. I mean, Moses is a better man than me. He strikes it twice. I put a zero in the end, man. I hit that thing 20 times. But you might say, it seems so small. Such a small thing. When it comes to the sacred things of God, don't be casual. Don't be casual with the sacred things of God. God's name is holy, holy. He he tells Moses, he says, I got two charges against you, Moses. Number one, you did not believe me. Because if Moses believed God, he wouldn't have struck the rock, he would have spoke to the rock. And the amazing miracle would have taken place. It's amazing how God gives Moses a staff, and the staff in his hand is performed to create this miracle. Sometimes God gives you something, puts something in your hand, and God's like, watch me work. I'm going to put something in your hand. Watch me work. Watch me do something amazing in front of your eyes. Moses didn't believe God. Number two, he didn't uphold God as holy. God's like, you didn't treat me as holy. You didn't show my holiness. You didn't show the blazing holiness of my character, my nature in front of the people. And so here's what God did. He lowered his hand of discipline. He dropped the boom on Moses' wife. He disciplined Moses. It wasn't Moses' old age that kept him from the land of milk and honey. It was his sin. Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 7 says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. That meant he kept trucking, man. This just guy kept trucking, man. Energizer bunny man. he was getting after it. God took him home. But God disciplined them. When God disciplines you, let me just say this real quick. Sometimes um, we have a warped view, sometimes of trials and suffering and setbacks and, 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 um, and hurts in life. Sometimes God allows those things or sometimes he ordains those things so that he can do a refining work in your life. He can work off the rough edges of your character. God's, he's in the business of making you into the image of Christ. And so, either you can fight against it, or you can say, "I surrender. I'm yours, right? You're, you're, you're the Potter. I'm the clay, and I'm an, I'm you can mold me. You can shape me. When God disciplines us, we have this warped view that God is he's punishing us. I must have done something bad. What did I do? Listen, God doesn't punish his children. If you have children, you don't punish your children. You discipline them. You discipline them for their good. It's for their good. It's for their protection. It's for their safety. It's it's for you to shape values in their life. That's what God does. He's not carrying a big stick waiting for you to get out of line, waiting to whack you. God is a loving Heavenly Father. But he sometimes will choose to discipline. He will choose to discipline. And when he does, what do we do? Instead of running away from God, we need to run to God. We need to be quick to run to God, quick to surrender, quick to get on our knees, quick to pray, quick to just be honest and and own our faults and our failures and our shortcomings. Repentance really is, um, repentance is really a mixture of three words. Number one, it's confession. Number one, it's confession. You acknowledge sin for what it is. You own up to it. You refuse to live in denial, right? We're all sinners. We're all broken, right? We're all dirty before God. Our culture has no sense um, or awareness of sin. People say, you know what? I'm okay. You're okay. We're okay. Hey, we're all good. No, we're not. We're, we're, We're born in depravity. We're born in brokenness, and we need help, and we need forgiveness, and we need to be rescued. The song we sang just a moment ago, God provided a way. That's the glorious gospel of the good news. Even though we're sinners, he provided a good way. Back to him. Number two, repentance is not just confession, it's contrition. When you sin, and your sin is ultimately against God, you are broken over your personal sin. You grieve over it. King David is a great example. The sin was so heavy on David, it was, it was like a weight that had been lifted. It was like a continual movie flashing in front of his eyes. He said, you know, I have sinned against you and you alone. My sin is ever before me. David was aware of what he had done wrong, and he owned up to it, and, and he was contrite. He had a broken heart about it. Number three, there has to be change. So it has to move from confession to brokenness change it has to move from verbal to internal to action repentance repentance is not you confess it good to go no repentance the full cycle of repentance is it brings about change you do something about it you have a change of heart change of mind literally that's what repentance is it's um i think the greek word is metanoia it's it's change of heart it's change of mind Right? There's this change that Jesus brings in your life by the Spirit when you're open, when you're, you know, when you're broken about your sin. Repentance is like a two-sided coin. You turn from your sin, you turn to God. You know, some people say, you know, you got to clean up your life, and, and then if you clean up your life good enough and you maybe come to God, maybe, just maybe, he'll forgive you. No. You come to God and he cleans you up. It doesn't care. It doesn't matter how dirty you are. It doesn't matter how many dark skeletons are in the the closets of your past. It doesn't matter about the secret sins that no one knows about. Come to Jesus and he will wash you. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. He will give you new life in him. Let's pick up this story. Look at Numbers chapter 27, 15 to 17. It it says, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the, the God of all the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Gosh, man, I love that. Anybody, I love that. I mean, I've been like meditating, thinking about that for weeks. Moses is like, God, it's not about me. That's what he's doing. When you think it's about you, you've, you've messed up. Moses is like, God, it's not about me. And, he, and he's, I, could just, I could just envision, I just envision Moses saying, God, he's pleading with God, God, give your people a shepherd to lead them, to care for them. It's not about him. He's missing out on the promised land, but they need a leader. In life, we're going to miss out on things. Sometimes God's going to say no. He's going to put a roadblock. But that doesn't mean that that blessing is not going to trickle down to someone else. That God doesn't want to do something big in someone else's life. When God says no to you, maybe God's saying, hey, maybe it's a wait. Maybe it's a clear no. Maybe it's it's, it's wait, maybe yes later. Maybe God's like, I want you to grow before I give this to you. Moses is a man of great humility. Moses is a type of Jesus in every way. Deliverer, rescuer, right? Servant of the Lord, intercessor. This is who Moses is. It it reminds me of Philippians 2, 3 to 5. This classic passage about, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is the model, the perfect model for humility. He left heaven's glory, and he took upon humanity. He worked a common job. He was a carpenter, so he, he probably had many um, calluses on his hands. He left the riches of heaven and became poor. He, he was broke and homeless. He was betrayed and murdered by by his enemy, he didn't receive a fair trial. He suffered and died for our sins. He rose again. Three days later, conquered sin, death, hell, and Satan. Jesus was humble. He was willing to give all. He emptied himself. He's fully God, fully man, but he emptied himself. He became a servant. He, the God-man took upon flesh in every possible way. You know, humility is not, it's not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of others and how to meet their needs. Humility is about really knowing who you are. Romans 12, 3 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned Notice several things in the text about humility. He says, clothe yourselves. He doesn't say, some of you. He says, all of you, with humility toward one another. The word clothe literally means to put on or tie something to oneself. The night before Jesus was crucified, he celebrated the Passover meal. And just prior to that occasion, the disciples, on their way to Jerusalem, after spending years with Jesus... They were bantering back and forth. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And many people believe, I believe, that James and John were cousins of Jesus. When you tie in all the passages, all the references, women at the tomb, James, John, parents, everything, it just makes sense. Most likely, right, Uh, their mother was sister to Mary and they were cousins to Jesus. So here you have family that are you know what, they're, they're, they're hearing that Jesus is giving out jobs. And they're like, we want a job, Jesus, give us a job. I mean, even their own mother goes to Jesus on one occasion. It's like, when your mom has to step in, I mean, good grief, right? I mean, they're bantering back and forth. Who's, who's gonna be the greatest? Who's gonna you know, sit on the right hand, left hand? As they make their way to the upper room, they go into this upper room and there's no servant in the room which was customary in jewish culture there was only a water basin and a towel and i can just imagine in that moment they're probably looking around at one another well who's going to be the servant who's going to get the towel and the wash water basin who's going to wash the, the feet of of everyone dirty feet and you know what happened jesus got up from the table and he tied the towel around his waist and he began to wash his disciples' feet. He began to demonstrate one of the greatest acts of servanthood and humility. You see, growing in humility is not an accident. If you want to grow in humility, you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional about it. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a choice. It's a discipline. The word "clothe." like I I said earlier, to put on or to tie something to oneself. That is a choice. You choose to pursue humility. You choose to tie humility around your waist and pick up the water basin and pick up the towel and start serving other people. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is a follower, a learner, a disciple of Jesus. When God saves you, one one of my favorite sayings is when God saves you, he, he gives you an apron. He wants you to get in the kitchen. The church kitchen, he wants you to get your hands dirty. He wants you to serve other people. Now, how do, we, um, how do we know if we're humble or not? Let me lead you through five questions. Number one, are you teachable? Are you teachable, right? Proud people like to teach. They like to talk rather than listen, right? They, they act like they know it all. You ever been around someone, they just act like they know it all? They know it all about everything. It don't, it don't matter. They know all about cooking. They know all about, you know, being a mechanic. They, they know about everything. And you walk away thinking, there's no way you know all that. Are you teachable? Humble people are willing to listen and receive instruction. Can I get Amen. amen. Number two, how do you respond to correction and rebuke? That's a good one. Proud people do not like to receive correction. Right? Their demeanor changes. How dare you? How dare you confront me? They start blame shifting. They start defending. They start arguing. They want to change the subject. Number three do you repent quickly and thoroughly? Proud people do not repent. Proud people, they don't walk through the steps, right? That we mentioned a little bit ago, right? There's no confession there's no contrition, there's no brokenness, and there definitely isn't any change. Proud people, they feel remorse, but not repentance. Remorse is they feel bad, why? Because they got caught, right? It's, it's like when you ask your kids to do something, you know, when my kids were little, I'm like, okay, clean up your room. I'm coming back in 10 minutes, it needs to be all clean. You go in, you have to inspect what you expect. If you tell your kids to do something and then you don't go check on it, it's not gonna happen, it's not gonna get done. Because those kids are wicked, man. They're wicked, dude. <laughs> Straight up. Wicked hearts, man. And you go in that bedroom and you're like, you realize that there's stuff and clothes underneath the bed. You don't, don't do that. Those are dirty clothes. Oh dad, oh dad, I'm sorry. No, you're not sorry. I I've told my kids many times, you're not sorry. You say you're sorry because you got caught. You're not sorry. The kindness, the Bible says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That's good, right? When we encounter Christ, his kindness draws us to himself. Repentance is this change of mind and heart. Here's question four. Are you considerate of other people? You know, proud people, they're self-absorbed. They're self-consumed. Oh my goodness. Have you ever talked to some people and uh, you're at like the 30th question with them and you have failed to get a question back? Anybody ever been there? Okay, maybe it's just me. Like you're you're throwing questions to get to know them, right? And they don't throw a question back. You know, you're like 30 minutes in and you know their whole life story, everything about their kids, but they know nothing about, they don't even know your name. Yeah, I tell my kids it's like baseball. You know, I learned this analogy. Communication is like baseball. I'm going to throw the ball to you. you got to throw it back. Like I'm waiting for something, you know? Proud people, they're just self-consumed. It's all about them. It's not about other people. They're not considerate. They're not thoughtful. Okay, moving on. Question five. Are you consistently aware of God's goodness in your life? I think this is a good marker. Like this, this shows if we're, if we're humble. Do we leave? Do we do we leave? Do we live with a sense of entitlement? God owes me? I deserve? I've worked hard, therefore? Or do we see all of life as a gift from God's gracious hand? You know, Moses, he he asked God, he said, God, I don't want your people to be shepherdless as they go into your land. Your people need a leader. They need a servant. Moses has a heart of a shepherd. It reminds me of Jesus. We know Jesus is the good shepherd. John 10, 7 to 11. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. We are his sheep. Did you know the the Bible says that we are God's sheep? We are God's flock. We are... are, um, the reference to us is we're like sheep. Matthew 9.30, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are sheep. Well, let's talk about sheep for a moment, right? So several characteristics about sheep. Number one, sheep are dumb. Dumb. Can someone say dumb? I'm dumb and you're dumb. You're dumb. You're really dumb. I've always wanted to say that to you guys. No, no. I am dumb. I am really dumb. I am. If you were like, if you knew how dumb I was, you'd be like, wow, like you're the pastor. Yeah, okay i am dumb you're dumb sheep are dumb you know i came i came across an article years ago um the article was entitled 400 sheep fall off cliff in turkey istanbul hundreds of sheep followed their i think it's their sheep leader off a cliff in eastern turkey plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looked on in dismay 400 sheep Fell 15 meters to their deaths in a ravine in Van Province near um, Iran, but broke the fall of another 1,100 animals who survived. Newspaper reports said yesterday. Shepherds from wherever that village, I've been struggling with the name, how to pronounce that. Ik Isler village neglected the flock while eating breakfast leaving the sheep to roam free. The radical daily said the loss to local farmers was estimated at $74,000. These are sheep herders. These are not billionaires. Can you imagine $74,000? Sheep are dumb. They followed their leader off the cliff. When it comes to sheep, you can't push them. You can't drive them you have to lead them. You know, I've never seen sheep doing tricks at the circus. Never seen it. They're dumb, right? Number two, sheep are defenseless. There's no speed, no strength, no, no savviness, right? They, they can't run away from predators. I mean, virtually they're defenseless against predators. If they get attacked, their only recourse is to flee, Number three, sheep are dependent, dependent. They require endless attention, meticulous care. Most animals have this uncanny ability to find their way home, but not sheep. Remember the parable of the lost sheep, right? Um, the shepherd had, had to leave the 99 sheep and go look for the one. One roamed off. One was dumb, right? Right? Getting too close to the edge of the cliff. Sheep, um, they're always eating. They have this voracious diet. They'll eat anything, right? Um, There's a shepherd by the name of Will Womble. And um, he says this about sheep. Once the sheep learned to eat feed, they soon discovered their love of being fed. Next, we experienced the enthusiasm of being greeted by an eager and hungry flock. He goes on to say, After some months, I decided that corn costs too much, and we had a long drive to buy it, so it seemed rather reasonable to buy grain sorghum, a hard-to-eat, less nutritious, but more convenient source of feed. The reaction to this expediency was interesting. First, they didn't say a word. They charged the feed trough but would not eat. They were obviously annoyed and began to butt, stomp, and kick, however... I kept feeding this bad feed to them. It didn't take long for them to quit stampeding at dinner time. Later on, they quit coming all together. Though a few diehards showed up, but they only nibbled and milled around, then returned to the pasture. He goes on to say, When the sheep have a good, wholesome diet of nutritious food, and one in the flock is injured or sick. I thought this was amazing the entire flock will check on and talk to the one hurt. It is amazing to hear them calling to that poor little sick lamb. But when the flock is fed poor quality feed, they tend not to show concern for the sick and injured among them. American culture, the American church has watered down the gospel. They have Uh, swapped out the good feed, nutritious feed of the word for sorghum, which is cheap, which doesn't last, which doesn't help you care for one another. This is why, as we sang, beautiful tie-in to the set. Christ is building his church, right? He is building his church, and God is using the word of God to build up his church, right, to advance his kingdom and the gospel. So as believers, we have to stand on the word of God. The word of God has to be the final authority, the final truth, the trump card. It is inspired by God. So when people say, well, you know, I, I don't know if it's all, you know, you know, inspired by God. No, every book, every chapter, every word, every sentence, every comment, every, everything comes from God. It's inspired by him. It is his truth. We don't, have, we don't have the authority to come to the scriptures and say, I don't like that, and we take scissors to it. No. When you are confronted with something that's like bad is going against the grain of like how I feel, you surrender. See, too many people, I'm not going to do this, but too many people take the Bible and they put it underneath their feet. They're standing over the word. They're the ones saying, I have the final say. No, you don't. Because the word of God is like an umbrella, and it, it hangs over your life. It's the authority under which you place yourself. God's word is over you, not under you. Okay, we got to hurry. All right, John 10. Let's look at um, John 10, 12 to 15. It says, He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Here's what Jesus is saying. A shepherd Um, hold on real quick, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, The the difference between a hireling and a shepherd, thank you, is danger and difficulty. A hireling checks out, but the shepherd is going to stay. Jesus is saying, I'm going to forever stay. I'm going to forever stay near you. I'm your shepherd, the shepherd of your soul. I'm going to care for you. The hireling tends to attends the sheep but because he's paid the shepherd serves the sheep because he loves the sheep a hireling it's about a job right clock in clock out that's it right but a shepherd it's not about clock in clock out it's about going the extra mile it's about being a shepherd it's about caring about it's about serving and loving listen we're called to really shepherd care for one another as jesus is shepherding us we're shepherding one another The beauty of what Jesus is saying is a hireling, a hired hand, when, when there's a threat, a wolf, they're, they're gone. But the true shepherd is going to not run away from danger. They're going to run to danger. They're going to get right in the mix of it. Jesus is our good shepherd. He leads us, right? He, he knows us. We belong to him, and, and, and he, he, we know his voice. Numbers 27, 18 to 23. It says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua. So you're going to see the, the passing of the baton. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. You see this? Yeah, Moses, I mean big blunder, big mistake, right? He strikes the rock twice. I can only imagine what what he was experiencing, the the, the disappointment, right, the regret. But this time, Moses is like, I'm getting it right. I'm gonna get it right. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Elias, or the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. There's this passing of the baton, right? There's this succession plan. In Deuteronomy 34, I don't have the verse quoted for you, but basically God tells Moses, I want you to, I want you to go up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo. And when, when I take you up the mountain, I'm going I'm to show you all the land. And Moses goes up and God shows Moses all of the promised land. And the Lord said to Moses, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, Mount Nebo, and no one knows. The Bible says no one knows the place of his burial to this day. God leads Moses up the mountain, shows him the promised land from a distance. He's looking at the land. He's looking at the promised land that he's been leading God's people towards for four decades. Can you imagine praying for something, longing for something for four days? Maybe a child, maybe a salvation of of a parent or a a renewed, uh, restored relationship with a, a brother or a sister. Can you imagine seeking God's face for four decades? He climbs the mountain, God shows him the land, and he dies. He dies on a mountain all alone. And to this day, no one knows where he's buried. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds a lot like Jesus. God led his son to Golgotha, Mount Calvary. And there his son, Jesus, died alone. He died alone. Yeah, he had one of the criminals who placed faith in him at the midnight hour but he died alone, bearing the the weight, the sin of humanity. And to this day, we don't know where he's been buried. The Gospel of John says that there was a tomb, uh, there was a garden tomb nearby. But we don't know the exact tomb. We don't know if it's still in existence today. There's a model tomb that you can walk into that I did in Israel. It'll take your breath away. The privilege to lead God's people into the promised land was passed to Joshua, his assistant. Joshua, Hebrew for uh, Yeshua. Jesus. Joshua. Jesus. Same name, Yeshua. And Joshua would bring God's people into the land hebrews eleven twenty six, 26 moses makes it into the hall of faith the hall of faith the hall of fame it says he considered the reproach of christ greater wealth than the treasures of egypt for he was looking to the reward moses he did not get the reward of the earthly promised land but he received the greater reward that greater reward He was ushered into the eternal promised land for those who trust Jesus to be their savior. The saints in the Old Testament had a forward-looking faith in God. Peter, one of the disciples, early leaders of the early church, pillars of the church, he tells us this in 1 Peter 2.25, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Two things there. You were straying. You were drifting. You were recklessly living out your own life, doing your life your way, right? Doing it your way. But now Peter's writing to believers, and he's saying, but now you have returned to the shepherd, of your soul and that's the question i want to ask you today have you returned from your reckless living from your way of doing things have you returned to jesus the good shepherd the good shepherd that laid his life down for you the greatest gift the most precious gift of all this displays the love of god That though we were sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But he died for you. Because he created you in his image. And he loves you. And has an awesome purpose for your life. And he wants you to know him. He wants the relationship to be restored. Which was severed by sin and the enemy and Satan. He can restore. He can bring back. He can redeem. He can forgive you. He can change your life. But you have to do one thing. You have to return. It's your choice. You can return or you can continually go your own way. Let's pray.